How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who are pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for daughter Judah. He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He has given the walls of her palaces into the hands of the enemy. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed festival. The Lord determined to tear down the wall around daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made ramparts and walls lament. Together they wasted away. Her gates have sunk into the ground. Their bars he has broken and destroyed. Her king and her princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more and her prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have sprinkled dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. Good morning, everybody. Let's uh, pray as we come to, to God's word. Father God, we praise you that your word is living and active. And we pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word. Help us to to know you better, help us to know more of your character and your great plan of salvation and cause us to turn to you and live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder how you feel when you read about God's anger or God's wrath in the Bible. And maybe you skip quickly over that passage um, to get onto something a bit more positive and uplifting. Maybe it makes you feel embarrassed Maybe it changes your understanding of God's character. Well, we can't get away from God's anger in our passage this morning. As mentioned six times in the first six verses in quite graphic detail. So we need to understand it. 
And I hope as we do so that you will embrace it as a, as a positive thing that it actually is. After all, think of some of the leaders who, uh, who have instigated the worst atrocities in human history. Think of Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Saddam Hussein. Don't they make you angry? We heard of the a story from Tom and Jacqueline about what happened to their daughter early on. Didn't that make you angry? Wouldn't you expect God to be angry? If God was indifferent to those terrible crimes, he wouldn't be a God who loves all that is good. It's the fact that God is good that he's angry at evil. Our problem, therefore, is not so much that God shouldn't become angry, but he shouldn't become angry with us. However, none of us, I'm sure, would claim that we are perfect and we've all fallen short and therefore we all deserve God's anger. The good news, as we shall see later, is that God has rescued us from his anger without compromising his holiness and his perfection. Well, in case you weren't with us last week, the historical setting for the Book of Lamentations is the year 587 BC. Babylon has besieged Jerusalem for 18 months and now has invaded and uh, decimated what remains of the people. Most of those who are still alive have been taken into captivity, and the buildings, um, notably the temple, the symbolic presence of God, have been destroyed. The few remaining survivors are grieving what has happened to their great nation and its people. They're angry that God has allowed it to happen, whilst acknowledging that it was because of their sin. In the first poem last week, we saw more of an objective description of grief by the poet, as well as the personal experience of grief of the people personified as Lady Zion. And we saw how God weeps with his people. In the first nine verses of this second poem, the poet focuses on what he believes God has done in his anger. There are 38 references to the Lord or to he or his. There's no doubt in the poet's mind who he thinks is responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem and their resulting pain. But of course, anger is the main theme of this particular poem. Then what does it teach us about it? And how does that link to what the rest of the Bible tells us about it? Well, the first point is that God hates sin, but is slow to anger. God is perfect in his holiness. In his nature, he cannot do anything wrong. He is truth, so he cannot lie. He is love, so he cannot neglect the needy. He is all-powerful, and in his power he has created the world and created humankind with the purpose of enjoying a relationship with him. When people reject him or despise him as God, then in his nature he will hate that and will be perfectly entitled to, to deal with our rebellion straight away. However, the consistent message in the Bible that, is that God is slow to anger. In a number of places it says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Sometimes I think we focus so much on those verses that we, we actually forget God's holiness. 
that he hates it and therefore so should we. If we are already Christians, as we grow in our faith and experience the Holy Spirit transforming us more and more into the likeness of Jesus, not only do we sin less, but we also become more conscious of our remaining sin. So the things we may have previously ignored, we, we now take seriously and we seek God's forgiveness for them. However, if we persist in our rejection of God and continue in our proud, rebellious attitude without accepting the salvation he offers, then there will come a time when God will deal with us. Jeremiah, the prophet, consistently warned the people of Jerusalem what would happen if they continue to be unfaithful to God. So what did happen? Let's turn to the end of the second book of Chronicles, chapter 36, and read from verse 15. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. They mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. God sent messengers, prophets, to warn his people, not just one, but again and again. Why? Because he had pity on his people, we read here. God understands the power, the lure of sin. But they rejected them. They despised them. They scoffed at them until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against them. We're going back to Lamentations. What happens in this passage then when God shows his anger? Well, God shows his anger by withdrawing his blessings from his people. And there are three ways in which he does that, which we read in this, uh, this chapter 2. First of all, he removes the blessing of worship. In verse 1, it says, He's hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. Israel had a, a privileged relationship with God. She is the nation God chose through whom he would bless the whole world. The temple was a blessing that God had given his people, a place where they could meet with God, where they could express their devotion to God. It was a temple where the people went to to offer their prayers and their sacrifices to God, where the priests would intercede between God and, and the people. It was only a symbolic place for the presence of God. Obviously, no man-made building could possibly contain God. But symbolically, it was where heaven and earth met. The physical destruction of the temple signified the breaking of the relationship between God and his covenant people. Later on in verse 6, the poet makes it more explicit. There we read, He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He's destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. As far as we know, the people hadn't stopped coming to the temple. They hadn't stopped performing the rituals. But God is not interested in ritual and outward display of worship. He's concerned about our hearts, 
and whether we're willing to, to show how much we love him by trusting him and obeying him. It's interesting if we are fully devoted to him and not also worshipping other gods. Closure of churches during this crisis has shown that church is not about a building. It's about a people who are devoted to God. And therefore we can continue to worship God as we're doing now. On Sunday evening, before a lockdown, we had a visit by an organisation that works with a persecuted church in countries where it's illegal to be a Christian. They did a simulation of what a gathering of believers might look like in a country like that. They had words of, of worship songs, but they couldn't sing for fear of being heard. And so they sung them in whispers. How awful that must be, we thought. How little did we know to come together, to sing, to, to meet with God, to encourage one another and be encouraged is a wonderful blessing that God has given us for our benefit. I wonder, are we missing that wonderful privilege? Or had it just become a duty to us, maybe? Something we had to do. If we're not doing anything else, we'll, we'll go to church, but we'd rather be going away somewhere else for the weekend. If one day it is safe to, to meet again, well, we look forward to that and appreciate it all the more. Or will we've got used to just switching on our, our iPads for an hour and doing our bit before we get on with the rest of the day and pleasing ourselves. God removes the place of worship. Secondly, God removes the blessing of protection. God's people enjoyed his protection. The Bible talks about God being a shepherd who is there to lead and guide and protect his flock. What happens to the sheep when he's no longer there? Or well, the wolf comes along and scatters them. In verse 2, it says, In his wrath he's torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. In verse 3, in fierce anger he's cut off every horn, the horn signifying strength of Israel. He's withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. In verse 8, the Lord determined to tear down the wall around daughter Zion. Whereas God previously protected Israel against their enemies and walled them in, now he's taken down the walls and will allow them to attack and defeat her. Previously, God would have conquered Israel's enemies like a burning fire, but now he consumes Israel herself. Now, verse 5, we're told the Lord is like an enemy. I wonder if we fully appreciate how much God protects us from danger. I wonder if we realise that we depend on the Lord for every day of our lives. We've become fixated on the coronavirus, but there are hundreds of things that could happen to us uh, were it not for God's protective hand. When things don't go well, when we become sick, when we lose our job, when we experience injustice, we may become angry at God, but when we are healthy and prosperous and treated well, how often do we thank God for his protective hand? God has removed his protection from Israel. And thirdly, God removes the blessing of leaders. The prophets Priests and kings all had different roles to perform, but were all anointed by the Lord. 
God spoke through the prophets. He cleansed the people of their sins through the priests. He governed them through the kings. But now, in verse 6, it says, In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. In verse 9, her king and her princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. While God's people were walking close to him, they delighted in the law. It helped them to know how to live lives in a way that was pleasing to God. The prophets would have instructed them and corrected them and warned them, but now they have no one to guide them. Why did God do that? Well, because they rejected his prophets and followed their own prophets. Look down at verse 14. The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The prophecies they gave you were false and misleading. Why were the words of these prophets so bad? Why were they false and misleading? Because it says they did not expose your sin. Israel was going down a destructive path. And instead of warning them like the prophet Jeremiah did, their own prophets, who were not from God, simply encouraged them in their sin. The Bible tells us how we should behave in ways that are pleasing to God. Our role as pastors and elders is to teach from the Bible to help us lead godly lives. If we're parents, we have a responsibility to teach our children how to lead lives that please God. Unfortunately, we can't change our children's hearts. They are responsible for their own decisions. But if we fail to warn them when we are aware they are on a path that is taking them away from God, then we too have failed in our responsibility towards them. God shows his anger by withdrawing his blessings. But what we should be clear about is that God does not enjoy withdrawing his blessings. Some people have this view of God as, uh, as being reluctant to give blessings and somehow enjoying taking them away. Like some sort of dictator who revels in uh, the exercise of his power. But the Bible describes God as a loving father who loves to give good gifts to his children. And it therefore will be painful for him to remove them. But how did the people of Jerusalem respond to what has happened? And what should our response be to our sin? Well, our response should be to, to mourn our sin and to cry out to God for mercy. After nine verses of talking about how the Lord has shown his anger by withdrawing his blessing, we come to verse 10. In the face of all that has happened, what do the people of Jerusalem do? We read there, the elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They've sprinkled dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. They are aware of their sin. They know there is nothing they can say to justify themselves. And so they come to God in silence and sackcloth in an attitude of mourning and penitence. And it feels like there's a, a natural pause now before the poet continues. 
We all need time and space in our lives from time to time to pause, to contemplate our lives and to seek God. Maybe this current situation is a time for us to do that. When a poet speaks again, he expresses his own pain in verse 11. My eyes fail from weeping. I'm in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed. Because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. Although I said we don't hear from God in the whole of Lamentations, the interesting thing about these words is it feels like they're not just the words of the poet, but of God himself. We said last week that God weeps with us in our grief. And it's not just when we grieve over something that's happened to us, such as sickness or the, the death of, of someone dear to us, but also when he disciplines us for our rebellion and causes us grief. In the same way that no parent enjoys disciplining their child, but does it because it's best for them. Remember the verses we looked at last week, which I said are the key verses to the whole book in chapter 3, verse 31. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. God does not enjoy bringing affliction, but he does that for our good. As Christopher Wright says, God's anger is saturated with God's grief and soaked in tears, both human and divine. Well, coming back to the poet, though, there appears to be a sense of powerlessness in verse 13, as in despair, he says, what can I say for you? With what can I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you? Virgin daughter Zion, your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? It's like I, I would be lo I'd love to be able to say something that would bring you comfort. But I don't know what to say. I would love to heal you, but I can't. Who can heal you, he asks in despair. The only one who can is God himself. The poet also encourages Jerusalem in verse 19 to cry out to God, which is what she does in the last three verses. But instead of crying out for mercy, for healing, she protests to God. She recalls his anger. It's a lament. And as we said last week, a lament is often a stage in grieving that someone has to go through. Many of the Psalms are, are laments questioning the why, the how long of suffering. But normally they get to the point of praising God. We have to wait until chapter 5 before we see something like a, a general, a genuine repentance. Next week we will see the mercy and the faithfulness of God at work. But what do, you, what do we learn from the rest of the Bible about God's anger? Well, we see in the New Testament that God sent Jesus to rescue us from his anger. We'll look at chapter three in more detail next week, but have a quick look over the page to the, the opening verse of that chapter, where it says this, it says, I am the man who has seen affliction 
by the rod of the Lord's wrath. I mentioned last week that chapters 40 to 55 of the book of Isaiah are a prophecy of God's restoration of Israel. How he will one day restore his people to their land. These chapters bring comfort to a people who has been exiled while telling them, your sins have been atoned for. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, we read of the servant figure. In verse 4 of that chapter, it says this. It says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. God knew that humankind could do nothing about their sin. That he therefore had to do something for them. Justice still had to be done. Otherwise, uh, he would not be a holy or a just God to leave sins unpunished. And so God punished the, the only person worthy enough to take the punishment on behalf of the whole of humankind because he was the only man who was perfect. Jesus himself, the man of sorrows. Romans 5 describes what God did for us through Jesus. It says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And so, yes, God hates sin, and it's right that he hates sin. He is slow to anger. But as sin persists, he becomes angry towards those who persistently reject him. And, and again, that is the right response of a holy God. But in his love, he's rescued us from his anger by making Jesus take it upon himself. For those of us who have not experienced a world war, the coronavirus may be the worst thing that's happened in our lifetimes. But it's just one symptom of a brokener world, along with many others. The biggest tragedy is that we live in a world that has turned its back on God. We're all sinners. And we all need to repent. When Jesus talked to his disciples about an accident, he said, those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. He didn't try and give an explanation for the, the accident that happened or why tragedies occur. He didn't put it down to their guilt but he stressed the need for everyone to repent, to turn to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. There will one day be a judgment when we deserve to be punished for our sins, but Jesus came to rescue us from it by taking the punishment we deserve because we couldn't rescue ourselves. That is the good news of the gospel. We all need to repent. If you haven't done that already, why Wait until it's too late. Why not do that today? I'm going to pray a prayer of repentance now. And if you agree with these words, then do please say Amen 
at the end of them. Let's pray. Dear Father, I'm sorry that in my heart I've sought my own selfish pleasure and found satisfaction in other things rather than you and failed to acknowledge that all the good things I have come from you. Please forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus to take the punishment I deserve and for saving me from your righteous anger. Please help me to trust you in the difficult challenges of life and help me to love you with all my heart and to love others as myself. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you've prayed that prayer for the first time, do please get in touch with us. It'll be lovely to hear from you. But now we're going to close our service by singing a final song about the man of sorrows, the Lamb of God, on whom the sin of man and the wrath of God was laid. <laughs>